0: From PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's
1: vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken piece. Very well done.
2: Editing is all about timing.
3: I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right?
2: Studio 360.
4: It's Kurt Anderson.
5: And in Seattle, we stay kind of gloomy. It's not going to pour every day, but we'll have showers in the forecast. The Northwest is where flying saucers, the term flying
3: saucers, was coined. The Northwest is uh, where Louie Louie's from. The Northwest is where the Manson family used to vacation up this way. And this place is weird. All this stuff is a factor in, in what happened in the music.
0: Today on the show, grab your tattiest flannel shirt and strongest cup of espresso because we are heading to the Pacific Northwest, back before everybody thought of it as cool. Gen Xers and boomers want to feel even older? Sub Pop Records is currently celebrating its 30th anniversary. They're the quintessentially indie label in Seattle that launched bands like mud honey sound garden and of course
4: one baby to another says i'm lucky to you i don't care
6: what you think, it is about
0: me so if you were a rock musician back then trying to get a label deal you might have gotten this actual form letter in the mail. Dear Loser. That's Megan Jasper. She used to be an intern and receptionist at SubPOP.
2: Dear Loser, thank you for sending your demo materials to SubPOP for consideration. Presently, your demo package is one of a massive quantity of commendable material we receive every day at Sub Pop World Headquarters and is, due to time and volume restrictions, on its way through the great lower intestine that is the talent acquisition process. Kind regards.
0: Jasper was laid off during one of the company's many downturns, but then came back years later during an upturn, got promoted to general manager, then executive vice president, and now she is the CEO of SubPop.
2: Yeah, it's crazy, starting as an intern. 30 years later, she
0: finds the arch tone of that Rejection letter, less cute.
2: I, you know, I love that we have attitude and that we weren't afraid to use it. But there's something about this rejection letter that it has never sat well with me. And it makes me feel bad for anyone who ever got it. I mean, I just, I think of those folks getting this and just being heartbroken. And it kind of kills me. When you're a small label and you're scrappy, you can get away with attitude. It's like being a chihuahua. You know, it's expected. But if you are a 30-year-old company and in your world you have been able to succeed in some way and you're kind of a bigger kid, you don't get to pick on someone who's smaller than you. And that actually, I think, is indicative of what 30 years will mean.
0: But back in the 90s, Jasper had more of a stomach for nonstop irony and mischief, didn't we all? And never was she more deliciously mischievous than in late 1992, when she one day got a call from The New York Times. 1992 was peak grunge. It was the year that Nirvana reached number one on the Billboard chart with Nevermind. And a freelance reporter for The Times, Rick Marin, was working on a big article all about grunge music and the associated, pardon the expression, lifestyle. The Times guy called Sub Pop's co-founder, Jonathan Poneman, who declined the interview and referred him instead to his friend and laid-off ex-employee, Megan Jasper.
2: So at the time... I was living on Queen Anne, which is a great little neighborhood in Seattle, and I lived in this basement apartment, and I would always make a French press of coffee, and I would drink it and then make another one and drink it. And that morning I was pretty wired, and I got a phone call from a journalist who said that they were doing a huge feature on grunge and Seattle. So then the journalist said, well, specifically... We would like to share a lexicon of grunge. You know, every subculture has a different way of speaking. And there's got to be, you know, words and phrases and things that you folks say that might be unique to Seattle. And I just figured, sure, of course there is. And, you know, there, there really isn't. You know, you joke around and make fun of things, and so it was definitely I'm gonna fuck with him from the get go. And so the journalist was saying, "Well, let's talk about like articles of clothing." And he said, "How about like, do you wear shredded denim?" Or and I said, "Yeah, uh, those are wax slacks." And um, what about like those big sweaters that Kurt Cobain wears? And I said, "We we just call those fuzz." And I tried to say things that were kind of believable. You know, what about um, big shoes that I see a lot of the musicians wear? Those are plaits. So I figured I wouldn't go too hard, you know, as far as the nonsense goes. But at some point, he was believing me so much that I started to feel bad. And I thought, I'm just going to get a little bit more outrageous. So he said, "What what if you're just like hanging around at home, like... And I said, well, that's bound and hagged. But he wasn't laughing. And then he's like, well, what about if, like, you're just down and out? I was like, that's harsh realm. We also did um, swinging on the flippity-flop for hanging out, and that's my favorite one. He said, what if you just get hammered? And I said, that's a bloated big bag of bloatation. So I felt like it got pretty, you know, silly, I thought that this was all going to end with him going, oh, come on. And that never happened. We finished, and I just thought, whoever works with this person is going to crack up when they read this. and, And it will never see the light of day. Like maybe a month or so, my phone rang, and it was my mom. And my mom said... Jesus Christ, have you read the New York Times today? And I said, no. And she said, you better go down and get one. You're in it. So I ran down to 7-Eleven and I got the copy of the Times. And it was, it was front page style section. And I could not believe that the lexicon of grunge was in print. There were some I noticed that didn't make the list. There was one called a tuna platter, which was a hot date, um, and that one never made it. So someone maybe pulled that one, but then thought the other ones were appropriate. I thought maybe I would hear from a few people about it and we would laugh. All of that happened, plus a ton of other things. There was a music magazine called The Rocket. They printed it, and then one of the local labels, CZ, made T-shirts with the lexicon, and Mudhoney were doing interviews when they were overseas, and they were answering all of the questions using these words. And then I got a phone call from The New York Times, and it was from the style editor who was yelling at me, which fair enough, I mean, I did lie. But but then she said, I'm you know, wondering where I can buy those t-shirts. So <laughs> so I gave her the information for CZ Records so that she could buy some T shirts. It it was funny and crazy and Harsh Realm had a pretty good run. I know it became a TV show for a little while. From the creator of The
7: X-Files comes the most anticipated new show this year. Welcome to Harsh Realm. Harsh Realm, series premiere next Friday at 9, 8 Central on Fox.
2: It's still every bit as ridiculous today as it was 26 years ago. And I think it wouldn't be as funny if it weren't for The New York Times. You know, like if it were printed in like a local paper. It would have been Here Today, Gone Tomorrow, but that it was printed in this prestigious newspaper that I continue to love. (laughs) It's pretty nuts.
0: Megan Jasper is CEO of Sub Pop Records, and you can see that infamous hoaxy New York Times sidebar, her lexicon of grunge, at Studio360.org. Our story was produced by Studio 360's Sam Kim, with special thanks to KUOW in Seattle. Sub Pop later signed acts like Fleet Foxes, and this trio from Olympia, Washington, Slater-Kinney. The band was great and incredibly influential. Esquire magazine called them the best band ever. I talked to Carrie Brownstein, Slater-Kinney's best-known founding member, a couple of years ago. She had just published a memoir about the band's rise and fall and resurrection called Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl. Um, you, you seem this very low-key person. Seeing you on stage, you, you rock and you jump and you throw yourself around. Is, uh, do you feel like a different person when you're, when you're behaving in this wild rock and roll star way on stage?
8: Yeah, I do. And and I like the transformative quality and what a stage allows you to do, which one is believing yourself, uh, especially uh, with music that has volume and loudness, as uh, Slater Kinney does. It kind of creates this sort of buffer between your sort of quotidian self and your performer self, and you are just allowed within that sphere to explore, and there's so few real-life pedestrian moments where you're allowed to express anger or even sheer sort of undiluted joy or danger. I mean, people can't right. do that.
0: People, Thank goodness.
8: You, yes, it's it's not, so it's you not appropriate. You can
0: play a character, but it's a character that is a version of you.
8: It's In some ways, it feels like I'm moving closer to a version of myself that has really been the self that has saved me most of the time.
0: Right. I want to play a Slater-Kinney song from your seventh album from a decade ago, The Woods. It's called Jumpers.
3: I spend the afternoon in cars I sit in traffic jams for hours Don't push me, I am
0: not okay So talk about how that song came to be.
8: Uh, There was a brief period of time when I was living in the Bay Area, uh, I felt very displaced down there. There was such a disparity between this, these bright, beautiful, cloudless days and uh, this encroaching depression. And as uh, anyone knows that's suffered depression and that's something that I've uh, suffered with uh, most of my adult life, um, it creates a colorless world. So, uh, and if you, the more in contrast you feel to your environment, the more pronounced that set that sense of despair can be. So I was sort of living in this beautiful place and feeling very lost. Uh, I was reading an article uh, in the New Yorker by Tad Friend called "Jumpers." Uh, it was about uh, suicides on the Golden Gate Bridge, and it it was a harrowing. Article. It, it was about actually the survivors, uh, a very small percentage of people that have survived uh, the attempted suicide off that bridge. Um,
0: I remember that piece, and 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 i still think about the fact of the survivors who said, "As soon as I jumped, I regretted."
8: Yes, it. <laughs> that is a that's a haunting, that's a haunting part of that story. And uh, what I wanted to write about was. You know, this 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 strange, just this combination of, of something that signifies, you know, architectural prowess and structure and solidity and a symbol of progress in the city, that it could both be that and, and a, a place of despair. And um, the, the ways that people hope that cannot find meaning in their life, their last hope is that they'll find it in their death. That to me is is very sad. And I related to it a lot then
0: and and 10 years later do you do you relate to it in a different way
8: you know when i when slater kinney we went on hiatus for about 10 years and uh when we came back together i remember we practiced jumpers and i realized i was singing it about living this time which is which is a big change
0: yeah you, in the book you talk about the tour uh in support of of the album "The Woods" that that song was that we played before is on. Being really tough, you were in a terrible place, uh, and and you describe it very starkly and vividly. Uh, do you have a single most vivid memory from that time? I can think of one in the book, and I don't know if that's <laughs> it. But,
8: well, I mean, my body had kind of been rejecting tour for years. Tour is a very fragmentary existence; it's peripatetic. It is destabilizing. Right. And so my body had kind of been screaming out for years, like, please stop, please slow down. Uh, and, I've, and in some ways, I felt like I was touring emergency rooms. I felt like I've seen I've seen a hospital in so many cities. Really? <laughs> yeah, Leicester in, in England, uh, Denver, Seattle.
0: Because you, you, you were just not, like, bummed out. You were breaking down.
8: Yeah, I was having panic attacks and back going out. You know, just it's, it kind of all came to a head Um In in Belgium in 2006, and I describe in the book a very uh, self-annihilating moment um, that unfortunately – well, unfortunately happened, period, but also happened in front of my bandmates and and really –
0: You punched yourself in the face. Yeah. I I try to imagine what that means.
8: It means exactly. I mean, really,
0: you can really suck yourself. Yeah, please don't try it. But um,
8: don't worry. <laughs> you're like, don't worry. I'm. I'm not crazy. Um, well, I'm not crazy either. But I will say that um, there, uh, there's an essayist I love, Charles D'Ambrosio. In an interview, he he talks about this idea. One reason he writes is sort of the dream of making the distance go away. And I felt like I had really tried so hard to uh, assemble. Uh, a life, uh, a substitution for family that I didn't feel like I had. But by being detached, I was creating loss and longing. And I think it just, I got to the point where I was a divided self and that I couldn't function like that anymore. And that's what, you know, broke up the band. In retrospect, it was actually a good time to go out. Um, It wasn't a good way to go out, but it was not a bad time.
0: And then you didn't pick up a guitar or sing, or you just like went cold turkey for a few years.
8: A few years, I wrote for NPR Music. I did a blog, uh, volunteered at a humane society, worked at an ad agency. I threw myself into a lot of different jobs. Uh, Then Janet Weiss, the drummer of Slater-Kinney, and I um, were in a band called Wild
0: Flag. And then I started Portlandia with Fred Armisen. Um, How does TV fandom feel compared to rock star fandom?
8: Yeah, that's that's a good question. I One time I was at an airport in San Francisco, and season five of Portlandia premiered within a week of Slater-Kinney's new album, No Cities to Love, come, coming out. And uh, I was having, a, you know, sitting down, having a drink before my flight. A couple to the right of me said, hey, we love Portlandia. Can we get your picture? And I said, sure, no problem. And then Another couple came up to me on my left, and they glared at the other couple. (laughs) And they said, we don't know your show, but we have been fans of your band for a very long time, and we don't need your picture.
0: (laughs) That's like, we should have that on
8: tape. (laughs) It was beautiful, and I loved both couples.
0: Yeah. Carrie Brownstein, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. I talked with Carrie Brownstein in 2015. Next on our time-traveling tour of the Pacific Northwest, Twin Peaks. What it was like growing up
9: where that show was filmed. There was a string of years where every single year, someone from the high school would die in some tragic way, whether, you know, drowning in the river or, you know, murders and suicides. And there was definitely this sense of tragedy just sort of hanging over the town.
0: That's next on Studio 360. This hour of Studio 360 is all about the Pacific Northwest.
10: Diane, I'm at the Twin Peaks County Moor with the body of the victim. What's her name? Laura Palmer.
0: Laura Palmer. The Northwest was the setting for one of the most idiosyncratic and influential network television shows of all time. Twin Peaks. Even though it failed to keep a giant 1990-sized network TV audience and lasted only two short seasons, it was cultishly beloved and revived last year on Showtime for one more season. Even though the titular town, Twin Peaks, Washington, is fictional, on the show, it's fully imagined and feels real. And as Eric Malinsky found out, one small cohort of people don't think of Twin Peaks as a twisted netherworld that only exists on TV. For them, it's home.
11: There are over 100 towns in America called Twin Peaks. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's someone in every one of those towns who watched the show in 1990 and thought, hey, that's my Twin Peaks. Now, none of the towns in the state of Washington where the show was filmed are actually called Twin Peaks. But the show sparked a different kind of identity crisis for them. Until Twin Peaks went on the air, North Bend and Snoqualmie were known as sleepy logging towns with great fishing, hiking, and skiing. And suddenly they had this new identity imposed on them by a filmmaker with a very strange sensibility. Kyle Tweedy grew up in North Bend and he remembers the moment when
1: everything changed. So when the first show came out, you know, uh, everybody was sitting down, everybody in town sitting down watching the show, and uh, there's pictures of the birds and the mountains and all the fun stuff that uh, people love about North Bend. But then all of a sudden there was this dead gal wrapped in plastic, and uh, um, half, half the town turned their, their TVs off. <laughs> they didn't want to be known as, as the serial killer town.
4: Good Lord, Lord.
11: Kyle is the owner of Tweety's Cafe, which is the same location as the Double R diner on the show. That's where all the characters plotted their evil schemes or gossiped about who killed Laura Palmer. And Kyle says it's hard to walk the line between being a real place and a destination for tourists who come there with big expectations. Like on the show, another guy named Kyle, actor Kyle McLaughlin, is always going on about how this diner has the best damn coffee in the world. And the cherry pie? This must
4: be where pies go when they die. Mm.
1: That's hard to live up to. Let me tell you, uh, cherry pie is expensive to make, expensive to uh, buy the ingredients for, and a pain in the butt to make by hand, uh, which we do.
11: But it's not all cherry pie in Twin Peaks. Dana Hughbanks is a musician, and she works at the Black Dog Arts Cafe in Snoqualmie. She thinks that David Lynch captured something about the area that feels right to her—something darker, more mysterious.
9: There are so many specific elements, whether it comes down to like the the track of the chorus frogs that he chooses to put into a scene, behind you know dialogue at night, or, or the you know the way that the road looks with like the towering evergreen trees, you know when James is riding his motorcycle down the road at night.
11: Now, Dana was born in 1990, the year that Twin Peaks came out. She went to the same high school we saw on the show with the red stripes in the walls. And she says that growing up, her friends completely embraced their reputation as the real Twin Peaks.
9: Just even from the time of being in middle school and high school, I remember there being this sense of um, almost like a a curse hanging over the town. And, you know, that sounds really cliche and, and corny, but it's it's true. I mean, that was often a part of the conversation. Um, there was a string of, of years, maybe 10 years, where every single year someone from the high school would die in some tragic way, whether, you know, drowning in the river or, you know, murders and suicides and, you know, terrible car accidents. And there's um, there was definitely this sense of you know, tragedy just sort of hanging over the town a lot of the time. And and still, and and it creates this sort of atmosphere where you can almost see a story like Laura's story playing out. Of course,
11: everything feels melodramatic when you're a teenager. That's why I loved the show when I was in high school. But this area does have an unusual track record of grisly murders. In the 1980s and 90s, Gary Ridgway, the so-called Green River serial killer, Dumped the bodies of his 50 victims along the Green River east of Seattle. Dana remembers two instances where men killed their entire families, and one of them lived up the road from her when she was a kid. There's also a literal darkness to the show, which feels right to her. And it's not a camera trick, that's just the way the area looks.
9: I just spent the last year traveling the country, and I just returned to Snoqualmie like two months ago. And when I came back to Washington, you know, the people that I was traveling with, I turned to them and was like, I've, like, I forgot how dark, like how literally, you know, the sky and the colors and the trees and the hillsides, like how literally dark this place is compared to anywhere else in the country.
11: Christy Coffing owns the cafe where Dana works.
9: We get so much
6: rain and so much darkness and when it, when it first begins in the winter, you think, oh, this is fine. I can handle it. And then a couple months in, you just think that you're going to go insane.
11: But Christy strives to keep a positive attitude. Her cafe is a haven for local artists and musicians. And when they were filming the new season of Twin Peaks, the crew was in there regularly.
6: We had David Lynch in for lunch, and he was just very gracious.
11: And did he order pie or coffee?
6: No, he had. I think he had a turkey BLT. <laughs>
11: Christie loved Twin Peaks when it came out. In fact, before the show debuted, someone from the props department bought a diary at a store that Christie ran. At the time, she didn't think anything of it, but that diary turned out to be a huge plot point on the show. It was filled with Laura Palmer's secrets.
4: And then she's written, nervous about meeting Jay tonight. That's the letter J, Diane. And that is the last entry.
6: You know, you have to remember that at the time we were a logging community. So most of that that community, the loggers, they didn't really care either way. But a lot of the merchants just stood up and took notice because it was just amazing the tourism that it brought to town.
11: Kyle Tweedy also relies on tourism, but he didn't mean to. When he bought the diner in the late 90s, he thought that Twin Peaks was a fad that had passed its prime. So he remodeled with banners of local sports teams.
1: But then in uh, maybe three months after uh, owning the business and opening up, there was this gal standing there looking at the one or two pictures that we had left of uh, Twin Peaks. And uh, she had flown from Germany to New York, from New York to Seattle, got in a taxi and came here. Didn't have a hotel, didn't have anything else. 19 years old, she had to get to here. So at that point, we just really realized that for some of these fans, it was really a mecca for them, you know, a place that they needed to to visit before they died. So um, we began at that point to try to amass as many Twin Peaks memorabilia things so that we could. Then in
11: 2015, he learned that David Lynch was coming back to film season three of Twin
1: Peaks. Sat down with David Lynch, and uh, asked him what he wanted to do, and he said he kind of wanted to take it back to the way it was before. I said, "Well, if that's what you want to do, go ahead." But the town can't
11: go back. When Twin Peaks first went on the air, some of the locals worried that the show was undercutting the small town charm of the area. But now they're facing a bigger identity crisis: whether these towns will remain small towns. Now they're only thirty miles east of Seattle. And since the tech boom took off, they've become very desirable locations for people working at places like Amazon or Zillow. The population has quadrupled since 1990. Housing prices have soared beyond what a lot of locals can afford. They're even tearing down the old high school to make way for all the new families. And that bums out Dana Hubanks.
9: We we want it to stay the, the strange, weird place that it's always been. And again, going back to the you know the relatability with the series it's like coming here you could go into you know any bar in North Bend and and meet someone just as, as weird and strange and you know whatever you want as a character on Twin Peaks but the more that that you know development happens and the more that that gentrification happens you know the less and less of that you see in the you know more and more of you know suburban families and parts of the community that that don't bring the character that has always been associated with this place.
11: So when Dana watches Twin Peaks, she sees a time capsule. I mean, yeah, everybody in the show is up in each other's business and trying to screw each other over, but at least they know their neighbors.
9: I feel nostalgic for that time even though I was only, you know, I was an infant in that time, but but just to know that there was a a time when this place was was a little bit more protected from all of that craziness and Yeah. I wish we could return to it.
11: That's right. To her, craziness is not a supernatural serial killer named Bob. It's seeing a Banana Republic where there used to be a mom-and-pop store, or seeing BMWs where there used to be pickup trucks
9: every week basically you see a new like notice of public land use go up and you're like all right you know another shopping center another housing development you know what's next and i think a lot of people in this area feel like you know we're destined to become another any town usa basically
0: eric malinsky is host of the podcast imaginary worlds which is about sci-fi and fantasy and other not necessarily realistic genres. Coming up...
5: If rock is the last great invention of the industrial era in the United States, Nirvana is the last great invention of rock and roll.
0: We go deep into the music of Nirvana's album Nevermind. That's next on Studio 360.
9: Studio
0: 360. We're going to finish our special Pacific Northwest Hour with Nirvana. In his early 20s, Kurt Cobain came out of hard scrabble, small town Washington State and transformed rock and roll. He'd grown up on punk music when it was new, and the first Nirvana album, called Bleach, in 1989, was a ball of raucous, punky energy. But it was their second album in 1991 that brought Nirvana to my attention. They were the last new rock band I really loved and made Cobain and Nirvana famous. Even that cover was bracing a little baby swimming toward a dollar bill dangling on a fish hook. The album was called Nevermind. It pushed Michael Jackson off the top of the charts and became a defining cultural artifact for a generation. As part of our series on American icons, we asked Trey Kay to figure out whether Nirvana's Nevermind saved rock and roll or killed it off. In
7: 1991, I was watching MTV at my friend Hank's apartment. I couldn't afford cable at the time. We were having a beer and chatting through videos of hair metal bands. Something new came on that I hadn't heard before. And Hank said,
11: This is the biggest band in the country.
7: I said, you mean on college radio charts?
11: No, man, I mean, this little band has knocked Michael Jackson off the top of the
10: charts.
7: In the fall of 1991, smells like teen spirit was everywhere. On MTV, on the radio, and on the sound system at a roller rink in Greenwood, Texas, where a 10-year-old kid named Ben Queller got his socks knocked off.
3: I'll never forget, I was going around this corner and dan and na dan and it came on. And I was like, holy shit, what is this? I literally had to pull over to the side and just hold on to the side wall and I listened to the whole song and it just blew me away and I immediately went back to the DJ and asked him what it was he's like oh it's this new band Nirvana and I went to Hastings the next day the local record shop and bought the record
7: Nirvana's Nevermind went number one in January 1992. It seemed like everyone, from college students to guys in suits to Gulf War vets, had an itch, and Nirvana was scratching it. It had been a long time since a rock record had made a splash that big.
4: When Nevermind came out, rock and roll was certainly not at its peak. That's Danny Goldberg, a music executive who managed Nirvana. By the end of the 80s, there were a lot of other kinds of music that were more popular. You had a certain kind of pop music like uh, Michael Jackson, Madonna, and Prince, pop R&B music that was just bigger than any rock bands. Not to
7: mention Garth Brooks, who brought country music to a mainstream audience.
1: ...and hip-hop. In
4: 1991,
7: it seemed ready to unseat rock as America's global style. With records like Ice Cube's Death Certificate... ...and The Low End Theory by a tribe called Quest.
4: And rock and roll was was sort of uh, on a downward slope... ...that seemed to a lot of people that were looking at the culture... ...inevitable and permanent... Uh, people had seen that happen with jazz and with other art forms.
7: One big reason for this was that rock audiences in the 1980s had fragmented. There was metal and hard rock and alternative and punk. To a young Kurt Cobain, they seemed mutually exclusive. This is what he told a French fanzine reporter in November of
4: 1991. Yeah. Well, when I was 10 years old, I started listening to Aerosmith and Black Sabbath and stuff. And then when I was about 15, I got into punk rock and abandoned everything else and listened to nothing but punk rock for about five years. And then finally I started liking all different kinds of music.
7: What Nirvana did, what nobody else was doing, was put all the different strands of rock back together. Jillian Gar is a Seattle writer who has covered the city's incredible music scene in the early
6: 1990s. The the influences that you can clearly hear, because they draw on, on pop music, from the 60s.
7: The Beatles, Stones, The Who. Try
6: to put us to about The hard rock metal of the 70s.
7: Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Aerosmith.
6: And the punk and alternative from the late 70s, early 80s.
7: The Clash, Hoosker Du, The Meat Puppets, and The Pixies. Strat- Put it all together and...
6: That's that's the style we call grunge now. It is a melding of all those other types of styles.
4: I song, words. I got so high, I I
7: Joshua Clover is a professor at the University of California at Davis. He wrote about Nirvana in a book called 1989. Bob Dylan didn't have this to sing about. I think there's a a twist
5: on Lennon-McCartney in terms of how the chords snap together. That was the last ingredient to go with the punk, the metal, and the indie rock. And with that all sort of grouped together, well, no one had made that sound before. Then you take a guy who can write strangely articulate, surrealist lyrics and scream in key and plays a guitar that sounds like it's strung with piano wire, and it's either going to be an absolute disaster or the most fantastic thing you've ever heard.
7: Danny Goldberg thought it was fantastic, but still he expected Nevermind to appeal mostly to alternative rock fans.
4: I remember Kurt's big goal at the time was he kept saying I just want us to be as big as the Pixies. I don't believe anyone in the band knew that they were going to break down the boundaries of the category and that what had been alternative rock was going to become mainstream rock. I don't think anybody knew that.
7: Nevermind was a game changer for all bands in the indie rock world. Kurt Kirkwood is in the Meat Puppets, an older group that Kurt Cobain
4: loved. We were around for what 10 or 12 years before that happened and you know, couldn't get bit, and uh, the music business suddenly turned around and looked at independent bands, looked at more, you know, garage art music, and in doing that, looked a whole segment of uh, our culture that wasn't really being considered. And then,
7: the true mark of success a cover by Weird Al Yankovic.
3: What is this song all about? Can't figure any lyrics out. How do the words to it go? I wish you'd tell me I don't know.
7: How do the words to it go? I wish you'd tell me I don't know. Nirvana fans were asking the same question. What the hell was Kurt singing about?
4: We don't mean to be really cryptic or, you know, mysterious, but I just, I just think that lyrics that are different and kind of weird and spacey paint a nice picture, you know It's just, just the way I like art.
7: Other songwriters had written abstract lyrics before, like Patti Smith, Lou Reed, and Michael Stipe. But Nirvana brought surrealism to the top of the charts. read the lyrics too literally. The emotions were still pretty clear. Here's Joshua Clover again.
5: That theme of like, I'm so messed up inside that I may snap, that's quite evident in almost all of Nirvana's lyrics.
7: Clover thinks that with Nirvana, the anger at society that fueled punk took a very 90s turn. It's turned inward. It becomes
5: a sort of psychological self laceration, and all the anger and hatred and fury of punk rock is now turned inward against the self. The entirety of your world is bound to be in your head, sort of for better and for worse, although it almost always turns out to be for worse in Nirvana.
7: Nirvana's Chris Novoselic related that fury to growing up in working class America, in Aberdeen, Washington.
4: There's a lot of logs and a lot of trees getting cut down and there's a lot of people whose lives revolved around trees getting cut down. And then now the trees are all gone and they want to go after the last trees and so there's some angry people there.
7: Joshua Clover thinks that the decline of America's industrial towns in the 1980s is reflected in Nirvana's music.
5: My account of of rock itself is that it's sort of the last great invention of the American industrial era. And so that rock period is really identified with industrial America and to a certain extent working class America. And if rock is the last great invention of the industrial era in the United States, nirvana is the last great invention of rock and roll. So we can see it as really the final flower of that era of American power. The
7: last great invention? Really? Well, has there been a bigger rock record since?
6: I think it burned with uh, righteous righteous energy, righteous rage.
7: Seattle writer Gillian Garr.
6: But it didn't provide any answers, and maybe the, I think that's a big reason why people can latch onto it or why they relate to it. Right? There's something that bothers you, and whereas if they'd said, uh, "We're bothered about this situation, and you should do so and so," well, not everyone's going to agree with that answer. So there, you've lost a portion of the listenership anyway. But this, because it taps into a sort of underlying frustration that I think people feel. Um, I think that's I think that's what it says.
7: Even for those who weren't so angry, Kurt Cobain was charismatic, a rock star who really was still one of the kids.
3: You know, I I looked up to him, as did, you know, all my other friends. Um, You know, he was our god, really.
7: Ben Queller, the kid who first heard Nirvana while roller skating, formed his own band, Radish. They were signed to a major label when Queller was only 15. I wanna be
3: sugar free. I don't care if you despise me. Kurt just, you know, represented everything that that we believed in, you know. Um, he showed that you know you could be yourself no matter what and that what other people think doesn't matter and um, you can always march to you know the beat of your own drummer
7: it's weird to think about Cobain as a role model an addict who committed suicide and left behind a one-year-old daughter
3: people are so much more complex and deeper than we give them credit for especially those that are you know, stricken by fame. You know, he was his own person and was gonna do what he wanted to do, no matter what. And I think when it comes to art, you have to live like that.
7: This kind of seems like the most positive spin that you can put on someone blowing their head off.
9: I try not to think about the fact that he committed suicide because it would have been my dream to meet him. I'm Cadence Young. I go to George Washington High School in Charleston, West Virginia.
7: George Washington High is my alma mater. I graduated uh, a few years ago.
9: But the dark things that he teaches us kind of makes you appreciate what you have now more. And even the darkest thing can be seen in a better light.
10: I listen to their music more than any other music. This is Daniel Clay, a freshman. I feel like Nothing can touch me whenever I'm listening to it, you know, just talking about it right now I'm feeling chills and i like i feel I feel good like i like i'm 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 happy about talking
7: about it. Daniel told me that he came to love Nirvana at a really dark time. It was when he and his family were grieving over his little brother dying in a car accident
10: now I didn't really know exactly how to deal with that and I went through um, some emotional things with that, and helping or trying to find things to help me was extremely difficult. and like, I mean, I was into music, but it just I hadn't found that one thing that really made me feel different.. I was actually hearing it and feeling it. And it kept me from doing things that I might have regretted. I mean, I look at that song as, he he wants you to be who you are. He doesn't want you to be who other people want you to be.
7: I'm not so sure that's what Come As You Are is about. But it doesn't matter. In fact, that's what makes it great. If it makes Daniel feel like no one can touch him, Who am I to tell him different? These kids are saying they see Cobain as a hero because of what an individualist he was, a renegade, a maverick from humble circumstances. Kurt Kirkwood of The Meat Puppets sees Nirvana as a quintessentially
4: American story. Anybody can be president, right? Uh, Abe Lincoln was born in a log cabin. Bill Clinton came from very humble beginnings. And how did that happen? Well, that's America, This can happen here. The equal opportunity is real. And that's one of the most confounding things about Nirvana is that, how? Why them? Why that? It's really, really good. The avenue for that to transpire is very American. Like, wow, right out of the woods. Boom. Right on your table. Strange. Will
7: kids keep listening to and singing Nirvana songs like they do the Beatles and Bob Dylan? While I was at the high school interviewing students, my own son, Templeton, had gotten interested, and he found some chords on the Internet.
3: Come as you are, as you were, as I want
4: you to
7: be. When I got home, he was singing it for his grandmother.
4: As a friend, as an old
7: enemy.
0: Our story was produced by Trey Kay.
3: Joyce is your... Don't be late, take a rest
4: as a friend, as an old memory. Yeah.
0: memory yeah. And that's it for this episode of Studio 360. Our show is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is...
9: Jocelyn Gonzalez.
0: Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is...
6: Sandra Lopez-Monsalve.
0: Our producers are... Evan Chubb. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim.
2: Zoe Saunders.
0: Tommy Bazzaria. Our production assistant is...
2: Morgan Flannery.
0: And I am Kurt Anderson.
2: That's a bloated big bag of bloatation. Thank you very much for listening.
4: PRI, Public Radio International.
0: My first movie, I was 13 years old, building my own spaceship, and now I've played a grandfather. How the pretty poster boy for Gen X angst planned for a vibrant middle age. I like being ahead of that instead of I'm not sitting here resisting it. Ethan Hawke, next time on Studio 360.